0: Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. And we are now at the end of the 8th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. And I hope that, if you've been with us, you've been able to see, from going through chapter 1 through chapter 8, Matthew's step-by-step methodology in proving the, the kingship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord and He is Savior. And it used to be in America you could make a statement like that and you would scarcely find anyone who would disagree with it. Even among those who didn't profess to go to church on a regular basis, they would at least acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior. And we're getting close to Christmas now, and hardly would you find a person that would dare even desecrate the holiday of Christmas. But times have changed in America. Uh, We live in a more pluralistic society. We live in a very secular society more than it's ever been and so now it's not assumed that Jesus was anything special at all, at least not beyond a good moral person. And that's why we need the Bible to set us straight on who Jesus really is. Uh, we have a country that's being, that is increasingly ignorant of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so even people, I think, that worship in churches, and they do attend church on Sunday, and they claim Christianity... They really don't have the same understanding of Jesus that we find in the Bible. And that's because many churches and many preachers have abandoned the preaching of the Scriptures. And you wouldn't expect that people would have a true understanding of who Jesus is if people don't use the Bible. So what Matthew is doing here is giving us a step-by-step tutorial in the kingship of Christ. Now today's Christianity accepts a variety of pathways to God. Uh, People say that there is validity in all religions and they permit other paths to God. But the only problem is they're not the ones that issue the permits. You have to come the way that the Bible says. And there is only one Savior. There's only one way that you can get to heaven. There's only one criteria for entrance into God's kingdom. And that is to admit the lordship, the kingship, the supremacy, the sovereignty... Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that information comes to us through the only divine source that we have, and that is the Bible. It comes to the pages of God's holy word, and so that's why we here at Berean Baptist Church preach only from the Bible. And any teaching materials that we have are based solely upon the scriptures, the holy scriptures, because this is the revelation of God, and we can only come to God through Jesus Christ. Now, we would expect then. That if Jesus is the king, that if he is the solitary, ruling, omnipotent power of the universe, that he should be able to prove that omnipotence. If he has power over the creation, then he should be able to control nature. If he has power over man's body, then he should be able to do with man's body as he pleases. If he transcends this universe, then he should know what's happening everywhere and at any time. And that's exactly what Matthew has given us. He's given us a record that shows that Jesus controls all of these. He controls nature. And we saw that when he calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee. He controls man's body. And we see that by the countless demonstrations of healing. Uh, Jesus healed people even from terminal diseases when there was nothing but death that was expected. And then we saw his transcendent knowledge when he healed a centurion's servant, He healed him without ever seeing, without ever speaking to him, without even touching him. Jesus healed him from a distance with just the power of his thoughts. Well, there's another area in which the power of Jesus must be demonstrated. If he is the ruling king, if he's going to establish a righteous kingdom upon this earth, then he must be able to subdue all enemies, no matter how great those enemies may be. They have to be conquered. And indeed, we do find that the Scripture says that Christ has spoiled principalities and powers. And so in Matthew's systematic approach to proving Christ's kingship, he shows here a demonstration of power over the supernatural. Jesus Christ not only rules in the visible world, but he also rules in the invisible. He rules in the invisible supernatural world, and that is actually the most formidable of all of God's foes. And as powerful as that world is, it helplessly surrenders to him. Now, this is our third message on dealing with demons, those supernatural, powerful enemies of Christ. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 8, verse number 28. And when he, that's Jesus, came to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them a herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea, and perished in the waters. And they that kept them fled, and went their ways into the city, and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your reading of your word today. Bless us as we look into this today. Help us to learn something from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is truly an amazing, it is an intriguing story of the supernatural. And we are talking about the supernatural world, one that has a retinue of spiritual beings that are the arch nemesis of God. God's greatest enemy is Satan. He's not an eternal being as God is. Satan is an angel that was created by God. Originally, his name was Lucifer, and he was a holy angel's, A holy angel, rather, who fell from his state of holiness. Now, how and why that Satan fell, Lucifer fell, is the subject of other sermons. But suffice it to say right now that he did fall, and he fell from holiness. He rebelled against God, and in that rebellion, he took one-third of the other angels. Now, those angels that fell are also spirit beings, and they are the beings that we know today as demons. Demons are evil angels. And just by the nature of being angels, they are very powerful beings. Now, it's Satan's desire that he would destroy the works of God. And if you wanted to distill all the works of God down into one category, we would say that it is the work of God to glorify himself. And so everything that God created, he created to glorify him. And Satan wants to destroy all things that glorify God. Now, I'm not going to deal with it extensively now, but Satan was also created to glorify God. And when God finally overthrows him completely, that will be a demonstration of God's omnipotence. And we have a sampling of that omnipotence in the story that we've just read today. Well, since Satan wants to destroy God's glory, he attempts to uh, destroy the crowning achievement of creation, which is man. Man is a rational being that was created for God's glory. Man can glorify God. And so Satan tries to destroy the worship that man gives to God, and Satan will do that in any way that he can. And one of the ways that he does this is he possesses people. He can do that. Now, this is called the wiles of the devil. That means the varied methods of attack that Satan uses to destroy the works of God. And so one of those is demon possession. And that was the subject of the first part of the message. That was the possession of demons. And this is what we have in this story. These supernatural evil angels entered into these two men that we've read about here in Matthew chapter 8, and they possessed their bodies. Now, that wasn't an uncommon tactic for Satan in the time of Jesus. Uh, That type of demonic activity was at its height when Jesus was here in the world. And Matthew could have picked out any number of instances where Jesus cast out demons. In fact, if you look back at verse number 16 of this chapter, you'll find that there were many people that were brought to him that had devils. They had demons, and Jesus cast them out. Now, the significance of this particular story is that there's a great extent of demon possession in these men. Now, both Mark and Luke record the same story, and they tell us the name of these demons. There, we're told that their name was Legion, and that's an indication that there were as many as two to 6,000 demons that inhabited the bodies of these men. And do you see why now Matthew chooses to highlight this miracle? Because it was a demonstration of Jesus' power to cast out not one, but thousands of demons all at one time. Now, one demon is too much for us to handle. But 6,000 demons or 6 million demons or 60 million demons is no trouble at all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in that, we see what we talked about secondly in the second part of the message, which was the power of deity. And what we have here is a demonstration of the divinity of Christ because we know that there's no one who can rule in the supernatural world but God. And these demons recognize Jesus' authority over them. They knew Jesus... And so when that boat landed on the shore, these men came running down the hill because they recognized Jesus. And they de- the demons knew that they were in trouble because of his power. See, demons have been here since the foundation of the world. They don't die. All of the demons were created at one time. And all of them recognized Jesus as their creator. One time they were holy angels and they were in heaven and they had to bow before him because they knew that he created them. So they know what Jesus can do. And when they see Jesus, they know that they can do nothing else but to come and bow before him. And so they say, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? So they knew him, they yielded to his power. They made no advance toward him. And you'll notice in verse number 28 that there was no person who would dare come by that place where these men lived. These men were fierce and they were powerful. They were just waiting for people to come by. And anybody who dared venture there were caught by them and maimed by them and even killed. But Jesus wasn't ordinary. He didn't have any fear to approach this place. And the demons made no advance towards him. And they didn't make an advance towards anybody that was in the boat. And that's a good lesson for all of us here. If you want to be protected from Satan's power, what you need to do is to get in the boat with Jesus. And when you're in there with him and stick close to him, Satan has no power over you. You see, Satan has no power against anyone who accesses the power of the Holy Spirit. And so these men ran down. They fell before Jesus because the demons that were in them recognized Jesus' authority. 6,000 of them would not dare make a move against him. And we also notice here that they ask, Did you come to torment us before the time? And so the demons know what Jesus intends to do with them. There's a time coming when Jesus is going to destroy all demons in the fires of hell. They know that it's coming. But they also know that the time is not yet. I don't know exactly how they got that information or how they know what God's going to do with them, but the demons do know the time is coming and they're all going to be destroyed. And do you know when that time is? It's when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And this is what Matthew is dealing with in this gospel account. He's establishing the kingship of Christ. And so the king has to destroy all that opposes God. And he will do this when he comes to establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, here then, it's where we find our third observation, and that is the purpose for the demoniacs. Why these devil-possessed men, why this particular time, and why in this particular place? Well, it's all done that the power of the Son of God might be manifested. These people had seen demon possession before, and they recognized it when it was in these men. And what we have here is the most severe form of it, They had tried to control it. They chained these men. We find that in the other gospel accounts. They chained them. They tried to tie them up. They tried to bind them without success. In the book of Acts, the Jews attempted to exercise demons. And in the gospel accounts, we find that that Jesus acknowledged that they tried to get rid of demons. And when Jesus showed his authority over demons... They accused him of being in league with Satan. And they said, you cast out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus turned that logic around. We're going to get to it later in Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus says there, and if I by Beelzebub, being the prince of demons, if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. In other words, what Jesus is saying, if the power to cast out demons is a demonic power, then when you cast them out, you are also casting them out by the power of Satan. Now, that wasn't an admission that they had the power to do it because they didn't, but it was just a tool of logic that Jesus used to show the inconsistency of their argument. Now, my point here in telling you this is that Jesus did not struggle with one demon. It was no problem for Jesus to cast out one. They couldn't cast out any. It was no problem for him to cast out one, because here he cast out a legion of them. And his purpose was to show that all power and authority belongs to him in the supernatural world. And the demons admitted that as well. I don't know if you've ever watched those old movies uh, like The Exorcist, where the priest comes out to cast out a demon, and the priest goes through this whole rigmarole with incantations and holy water and prayers and all of that. That's nonsense. But it does show you what people think has to be done in order to cast out demons. You just don't say to a demon, Get out of here, demon! And I'm sure the Jews thought the same. Uh, No telling what kind of rituals that they went through to try to cast out demons. But the demonstration that we have here of Jesus in this instance is that he didn't do anything but speak one word, and it's a short word. Verse 32 says, He said unto them, Go, just go. No dominoes, dominoes, who wants to play dominoes? Just go. There's no rituals, there are no fights, there's no rolling around on the ground with demons, no green puke or anything like that. He just says, Go. Go. And the demons respond to that, and that was amazing that he was able to do that. He dealt with natural elements by just speaking the word. He calmed the seas with just his words, no hocus-pocus. And when he cast out the demons, they don't resist him, they just go. Now let's look at their request in verses 30 and 31. And there was a good way off from them, and herd of many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. Now, the demons didn't want to be cast into the abyss. We talked about that last time. We find that in the book of Luke, that they said, We don't want to be cast into the deep. That's the abyss. And so they were hoping that Jesus would not cast them out into the abyss, that he would not circumvent the time to do this and do it right now rather than at the end of the world. And so they requested that they would be sent into this herd of pigs that was feeding nearby. Now, since Jesus had been all over the country casting out demons, the demons knew that Jesus was not going to permit them to stay in these two men. Jesus came to save these two fellows, not to have a casual conversation with demons. And so they knew that they were headed out. And so these demons asked to be removed into the herd of pigs. Now, let's notice something about that, the proof in the pigs... Now, there's a great question that arises from this, and you hear uh, arguments by commentators, and they want to know, why did the demons go into the pigs, and why did Jesus grant this request? Now, I would have to say, first of all, that they surely were not going to be re- request to be sent into other people. Jesus wouldn't do that, because then he'd just have to follow them around and cast them out again. And so the common consensus seems to be That the demons wanted to do something that would anger the people. That if they destroyed their property, if they destroyed these pigs that belonged to the people, then the people would never listen to him. I don't know if that's the reason. I don't think that it is. And if it is, did they fool Jesus when they did this? I mean, verse number 34 says that the whole city came out to see and they asked Jesus to leave. And so I think there might be some people who have the idea that they pulled one over on Jesus. Did those demons watched the reaction of the people, and they were slapping each other on the back, and they said, "You know, we got him that time, didn't we? You, you see what he did? We got him." But I don't think that Jesus was really concerned about that. He's not concerned about the reaction of the people, and you know why? It's because it takes God Himself to change a person's heart, anyway. So he's not concerned about that, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Without the intervention of the power of the Son of God, nobody turns to him. So why did Jesus grant the request? Well, I think the answer is actually quite simple. How do you prove that the demons are gone? How do you know for sure who did this? And how do you know how many demons there were? Well, you look at the proof in the pig's. There was a herd of many swine that was feeding nearby. Mark says that was a great herd. And so the demons went out, and each of those demons found his own pig to go into. And when they did, they all took this one giant swine dive right off the cliff. Now, pigs aren't all that anxious to go swimming, I don't think. And apparently, they're not very good swimmers, because the Bible says all of them drowned. Has anybody ever seen anything like that before? Do you think that... When the fellows went out there to herd their pigs and they were training somebody new to do this, that they would say, you know what you need to do? Keep those pigs away from the cliff. There's some of those mischievous pigs that are prone to, to make these swine dives. No cliff diving. So you don't want to get the pigs too close to the cliff. No, they didn't have to worry about that. This was something unusual. And so nobody had a question about what happened here. This is Jesus who did this. He's the one that's at fault. And the evidence is that the demons left. And those pigs went as crazy as the men had been when the demons were in them. And their first instinct was to kill themselves. And so there's your answer. Jesus granted the request because there wasn't a better before and after picture than this. Some say, well, Jesus granted the request because they shouldn't have been raising pigs. Well, they weren't in Jewish territory. And there is no prohibition in the Scripture for Gentiles raising pigs, so that's not the answer. The answer is for the purpose of demonstration. That's why it was done. And so we see it. Now the demons are gone. Power over demons is displayed. But what about the condition of the men? Is there another purpose for this? Well, I think there is. Secondly, the profession before the people. Now, you have a before and after picture of the pigs. You have calmly feeding pigs before, and then you have crazy, freaky pigs afterwards. But you also have two very different men. You have a before and after picture of them. They were terrorizing people before. They were naked and they cut themselves with stones. But I want you to listen to how Luke describes the scene afterwards when the demons are gone. They went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. What happens when the devil goes out of a person? What happens when Jesus comes in? Well, I'll tell you right up front, they're different. People are different. You can't have an encounter with Jesus and not be different. You know, a few years ago, it was popular for Hollywood stars to talk about how they've been born again. And sometimes you'd see them go on the talk shows and they want to talk about their spirituality. And... But I never saw a change in them, never saw much of a change. You can't get Jesus on the inside without it affecting you on the outside. And you notice again how these people try to deal with the demoniacs. I mentioned a moment ago how Mark and Luke describe it, that these people went and they tried to chain them up. They tried to do something with the outside of them. But that's not the way that Jesus works. He doesn't start on the outside. Jesus begins on the inside. And then what's on the inside shows up on the outside. Some of you might not have gotten that memo. But you just pick out the middle statement of the change according to Luke. And Luke says, this man, and here Luke is dealing with one man because he's talking about the one that had the conversation with Jesus. And he says, this man was clothed. There are two of these men. We're concentrated on the one, but both of them, I think, were clothed. So he was robed. He was naked before, but when Jesus came on the inside, he put his clothes on. You know, that's one thing that people do when they get saved. They start putting their clothes on. The more skin you see on the outside is a greater indication of what's on the inside or how much of Jesus they got on the inside. You ever notice that? I... I, heard this the other day. There's some people that I know that were undecided about what church that they wanted to attend. So, their method of choosing their church was to find a church that was close to the beach. And that way, that after church was over, they wouldn't have so far to go to get to the beach. Now, that sounds reasonable to me because a lot of folks come to church like they're headed to the beach. And then when they get to church, uh, they just, they get prepared for the beach because there's a big party going on. Just tailgate party at the church and then just continue on when you go to the beach. Here this man was robed when Jesus came into him. Secondly, we see that he was reverent. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, when the man was possessed with demons, he didn't want anything to do with Jesus. The demon said, what have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? Unsaved people don't want anything to do with Jesus. And even most people in churches today really don't want to have anything to do with the Jesus of the Bible. You see, they don't want a Jesus that condemns them for their sins. And they don't want a Jesus that demands that they give up everything to follow him. And they don't want a Jesus who promised that there would be hardship and suffering in the Christian life. And they don't want a Jesus that brings them ridicule. They don't want one that ruins their party time. But this is the Jesus of the Bible. I mean, this is the one that Matthew's telling us about. Now, people want to have part of salvation, but if you're going to have part of salvation, you have to have part of the suffering. And you have to have the service, and you have to have the self-denial, and you must have the sacrifice. If you want to sit at the feet of Jesus, you have to be reverent enough to suffer his reproach. The man was reverent. Thirdly, he was rational he was rational when they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind did you know that everyone without Jesus is out of his mind when when man fell his mind was corrupted And that mind that was perfect and innocent before and that was made to give glory to the Creator became corrupted by sin. And that's why we have all this hardship and why there's all this suffering in the world. Think of Adam for a minute. Everything that he ever needed, God provided for him. All the food that he needed was there. The love and compassion that he needed was there. The peacefulness and the serenity that he had with God was there. But then he sinned, and then the peace with God was gone. The ground was corrupted. His food was now very difficult to obtain. His relationship with other people was ruined. And within one generation, murder had already entered into the human race. Man without God is irrational. And it takes Jesus to change that. You know, Satan is the god of this world and he and his demons have fouled up everything on the earth. Nothing is right. Everything that should glorify God has been affected by sin and Satan keeps pressing people to do the irrational. Man tries to destroy himself and the demoniacs did it. The devils made them destroy their bodies. They cut themselves with stones. They lived among the tombs. That's an irrational thing to do and people are still at it. Think about it. How rational is it for a mother to want to kill her baby in the womb? How rational is it for a person to blow his mind on drugs? And how rational is it for the people of California to put legalization of marijuana on the ballot? How rational is that? I mean, legalize vice so we can continue to kill ourselves with disease and corruption, decadence? How rational is it? People without Christ are crazy, and they don't know it. How rational is it to eat, drink, and be merry when your soul is on the fast track to hell? But Jesus came, and he spoke one word, and the demons were gone. And then the men became rational. They're different. Now they're in their right minds. They're peaceful, they're at rest, they're reverent, they're robed, and sitting at the feet of Jesus. That is the rational place for all humans to be. Because when you see that Jesus has power over this supernatural world, when he has power over creation, when he has power over man, who could be rational and not sit at the feet of the Almighty King? Who's going to defy him? That's an irrational thing to do. Now, this is not the end of the story. The guys who kept the pigs saw those pigs jump off the cliff, and so they headed into town to spread the news. Verse 33, and they that kept them fled and went in their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coast. Amazing, isn't it? You talk about irrational. Fourthly, we have the parting of the depraved. Thousands of demons are gone. Two fierce men that terrorized the community are now tamed. They are rational and in their right minds. They're as gentle as lambs. They're sitting at the feet of Jesus. And what should be the reaction? Well, the irrational reaction is rejoicing. Praise God for his mighty works. Praise the Lord, the King, Hosanna. He's come to us. Jesus is here. Sounds reasonable to me. But it's not the reaction of the people. They weren't changed. They're still depraved. They might not have had thousands of demons in them, but they were still under the control of Satan. And they didn't want Christ there. They told him to get out. And why did they do it? Well, they did it because they feared God's holiness. Now, here's why the world doesn't want God. When God comes around, sin has to go. When Jesus came, he brought a new standard with him. When he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he relentlessly pounded man's imperfections. And he constantly exposed man for what he is. And nobody likes to be told that they're not good enough for God. Go out in your neighborhood and talk to ten people, and I promise you that nine out of ten, when you ask them, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And they'll say, well, I think so, because I'm not really all that bad. And you know, as long as Jesus isn't here, you can get away with that. Because you don't have anybody to compare yourself to but other sinners. And so if you can keep ahead of them, you're not all that bad. But when Jesus comes to town and you stand up next to him, you don't look so good anymore. See, when he says that you have to be perfect in order to get into his kingdom, that's news that you'd rather not deal with. Now, you see what these people could do? They could live with demoniacs. They could live with that because they were better than demoniacs But they couldn't live with Jesus, and they couldn't live with his cleaned-up disciples. And that's because of God's holiness. God's holiness always exposes sin. And that's when a person has to face that cold, hard reality of the condemnation of their sins. And so they'd rather live with demoniacs than be told something has to change. Do you see that in America? People can't live with real Christians. Real Christians are being forced out. If we bring godliness and sanity, they want to throw us out because they want to hold on to their wickedness. And that same wickedness is what has destroyed the whole family structure in America. But they want to hang on to that. They don't want God. You know, every night during the World Series, I don't know if you watched that or not. I watched a few of the games. But I know that every night during the World Series, in the seventh inning stretch, they had somebody saying, God bless America. Ninety percent of the people don't even know Who God is. And they don't even know what God you're talking about. They don't want Jehovah God to bless America. Because if Jehovah God blessed America with his righteous blessings and righted this ship, they would kick him out of town. How do I know that? Because they've already done it. Look at our schools. Look at our courts. Look at our government. God's already been kicked out. And you're going to sing, God bless America? God's not going to bring righteous blessing upon America And that song rings as hollow as a gourd because for God to bless America, there has to be holiness. And there's nobody that wants to live in the righteous kingdom of God without Jesus Christ. They don't want holiness. Now, the second thing we see here is they desired the darkness. Deliverance is what they need, but they desire darkness. Now, here you have two men that are dressed. They're rational. They're reverent. Six thousand demons have departed... And these people would rather have the demons than they would to have Jesus. And there you see the universal reaction to the Son of God. The Jews didn't want him. They crucified him. Later they would. And now we find the Gentiles don't want him either. Despite all the miracles that Jesus did, nobody wants him. The miracles grow old because the more that he does, the closer he gets to them personally. And darkness doesn't like light. Jesus said, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to light to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And this is not going to change. People are not going to come to Christ even if he takes the devil and throws him five blocks over by the tail. They're not going to come to him Because they have to have the light of God shine to shine in their hearts, and God is the one who opens the heart to receive that. And so these two demoniacs are only different from all the other people in town because Jesus came and He dealt specifically with them, and He worked in them, and He worked in their hearts. They couldn't overcome the demons that were in them. They weren't going to receive him no badly. How badly that they hated to cut themselves with stones. They didn't like living in tombs. They don't like terrorizing people. They don't like destroying themselves, but they're helpless to do anything about it until Jesus comes. You don't have the power to overcome Satan on your own. God has to do it. And so you do you see the systematic approach that Matthew is giving here it's working because for jesus to rule in righteousness the power of satan has to be broken in order for the everlasting kingdom of christ to come upon this earth he must have the power to cast out all enemies and for jesus to be god there's nothing in the universe that can successfully oppose him man has to fall at his feet nature has to bow to his will And the supernatural forces of evil dare not resist him. He's God, and there is no other. Christianity admits to no other paths to the Father but Jesus Christ. The apostle said, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages world without end. And there is the Jesus that you must know. He is the one who's able to deliver you from the clutches of Satan and from the power of sin. And he's the only one that can do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your presence now and we see this great story that's been given to us in Scripture, how it graphically illustrates the power of the Son of God that he is God and that he is the only way that we're ever going to be protected, the only way that we'll ever be saved is through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would open the heart of some person today, shine that light of the gospel of Christ into their heart, help them to realize that there is nothing that they can do to conquer sin in their lives. They can't become better. They can't do anything that's pleasing to you until the Son of God, Jesus Christ, becomes their Savior. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to realize that and today that they would trust you as Lord and God, the Savior of their life, the King of this earth. Bless everyone here today, Lord, in a special way with the message that's been given. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.